0: Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngarziwala and Obehi Alifoje. Let's get this rebellion started.
1: We all know that there's a mental health crisis at the moment in the UK and around the globe. Here's some stats from the British Medical Association um, released last September. And it's highlights that 1.4 million people are currently on a wait list for mental health services, and up to 35 weeks wait for treatment, depending on borough council, etc. One in four adults diagnosed with a probable mental disorder in the UK. That number has been averaging like that since 2020, maybe one in five in some areas. What we're seeing is a higher threshold for treatment. So, again, while they're the long wait, people get worse while they're waiting. High vacancy rates for mental health posts within the NHS. And I think, again, it's not necessarily that there are people to do it, but that actually some trusts don't have the funding to be able to recruit them. Hence the staff shortage, leading to extended treatment wait lists, which is obviously similar to the physical health side of things. But for the purpose of this, mental health is what we're talking about. And this is why we're still concerned about this.
0: It's even affecting our young people, which is heartbreaking as a parent to a teenage daughter. It's really scary to know that probable mental disorder rates in 17 to 19-year-olds have risen from one in six in 2020 to one in four in 2022. And that's according to the NHS. So what's the impact of poor mental health on the workplace? There's been countless studies worldwide, countless, that have proven that time and time again that mental health problems have an impact on employees and businesses directly through things like increased absenteeism, the negative impact on productivity and profits as well as an increase in costs to deal with the issue. That's not to even mention the damaging impact it has on employee morale. Mental health issues in the workplace impact employee engagement, productivity and reputation. Mental health is estimated to cost £1,652 per employee per year on average. According to the Mental Health Foundation. If you're in HR or people management, you will most likely know this firsthand. The main issues you may have experienced might be grievances, absence management, unofficial counseling, and the, the sheer time that you spend doing day to day troubleshooting of things that really shouldn't have gotten as far as your door. Employers have a legal as well as a moral responsibility to take care of their employees. And their well-being is intrinsically linked to the performance of any company. I mean, we know it's bad and without
1: credible intervention or effective support in place, it would only get worse. There's nowhere else for you to go. So we can't keep relying on light touch solutions, you know, small wins here and there. Hoping that it will have the sort of impact that we need it to have. So, how can you develop a wellbeing strategy for your organization that has a preventative and pervasive impact on your employees? That's the topic of this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion.
0: We're talking the transformational versus the transactional. We're going to look at why you should be looking for long term culture change as well as quick wins. And how you can create a well-being strategy that makes a lasting difference to your people. These days, it just seems like everybody's looking for a quick win in life, right? We all want it faster, stronger, better now. I should know. I'm the <laughs> most well. I am. I know. I'm one of the most impatient people. Listen, I've got ADHD. That's my excuse. I'm sticking to it. Unfortunately, mental health isn't always a quick fix, and it doesn't necessarily work to our timescales. After all, it's not about how quickly you go. It's about how deep, right? Sadly, we, we do meet a lot of companies in
1: our line of work that are only interested in ticking boxes. Not necessarily their fault. They just want something now that we sort out a pressing problem. Um, so I get that, they don't really know exactly what to do. Um, someone just said, oh, go and get the wellbeing workshop and they come over. <laughs> so we, they haven't really done their homework before. Or they're just copying what other companies are doing, what I call frankensteining, a wellbeing strategy. You take from here, you take from Google, you take from there, and then you go, eh, hey, they could what this for work, right? So they're doing the obvious stuff, like the talks, the wellbeing days, having mental health frustrated. These things aren't bad particularly, but they don't solve poor mental health on their own. The shared volume of workplace mental health concerns is proof of this. So if you're looking for value for money, then more impactful interventions that focus on culture change and prevention are the answer. The 2022 Deloitte Mental Health and Employee Report demonstrated on average organizations' wide and early intervention, such as culture change, awareness raising, has the highest return on investment at almost 5.6 to 1 ratio. So proactive intervention focused on preventing mental health disorders have a return on investment of 5 to 1 ratio. While reactive therapeutic intervention, which I like like CBT have the lowest return on investment, which is 3.4 to 1 ratio. For clear reason, the person is now unwell, so all the productivity has been lost already, therefore it takes a while to be able to get back to where they were before, hence why it's reactive. So clearly, culture change doesn't happen overnight, nor does it come at zero cost. But the data prove that it is worth the effort. So, how do you know if your corporate culture needs changing? Here are five signs that your workplace may be reactive and need some sort of culture re dig. Number one, no clear policy or support for handling extreme cases of mental ill health. So, you might have anxiety and depression, but not one for schizophrenia or bipolar. So, an employee comes with a new diagnosis of bipolar and you don't know how to help support them with it. Two, increase in stress-related absences and complaints. So when you look at your numbers, people who've gone off sick, long-term sick, complaints are stress-related either because it's overloaded in terms of their case flow or it's human factor. In other words, other people in the organization causing the stress. Increasing formal disciplinaries, legal proceedings or mediation that suggests that it couldn't have been handled on a team level. Four, increase in senior executive burnout. So sometimes what we're seeing is that the bosses of the bosses are also burnt out. And when they're burnt out, they are unable to, it's hard, isn't it, to feel empathy for other people who are struggling. It's hard to see the bigger picture because you're just as stressed as well. So that's another indicator here. And then five, an increase in general malaise, employee dissatisfaction, or a decrease in productivity. So those are five signs that your workplace might be reactive. If you recognize any of them, let us know. It could be nice for you to see where that fits in at the moment.
0: Listen, how do you solve this? If you recognize your organization has some of or all of those signs, the first thing that you've got to do, get your strategic hat on and approach mental health the same way your company approaches physical health. It should be called mental health and safety, just like we call it physical health and safety or health and safety. It should It's just health and safety, guys, whether it be physical or mental right? So those of you who listen to the previous episodes of the podcast know that I come from an oil and gas background. I worked for the world's largest oil company for a decade and a half plus. We had a huge, and I'm sure they still do, <laughs> huge culture of health and safety as a result of the tragic Valdez um, incident from the 80s, right? So, this is where the oil tanker spilled, destroying a lot of priceless um, uh, natural resources. It's left a legacy of destruction behind it. And it was due to um, tanker driver being drunk, I believe. So, that led to a huge shift in in our organization. In fact, the industry's culture towards. Safety, right? The safety first principle became pervasive. Our belief was that accidents don't just happen and they are always preventable. You can have the same approach for mental health. Mental ill health can be prevented in many instances it shouldn't just be allowed to happen. And then you deal with the consequences afterwards. Companies spend billions on physical health and safety. They know the risks, the consequences to them, um, both organizationally and, uh, reputationally. If they don't, if something were to happen, they wouldn't assume that just because they have first aiders though, or that they've brought someone in to do a fire safety talk that that's it they've done all the work they need to on physical health and safety exactly okay mental health and safety is the same way you need to be strategic in your approach which means having a thorough understanding of the root cause of any issues whether they be internal or external and a committed properly resourced approach to resolving it. Okay, so we have talked before about how mental health, employee well-being has fallen often squarely on the door of human resources and PNC departments. But if we choose to call it mental health and safety, it starts to make sense that your safety, health, and environment department should be involved. And now there's every reason for them to be. Because in 2021, ISO 45003, oh, I love a good acronym, (laughs) International Safety Organization, They produce the safety standards for everything. ISO 45003, Occupational Health and Safety Management. Uh, In brackets, Psychological Health and Safety at Work. Guidelines for Managing Psychosocial Risks. This was published two years ago, but not many people have made reference to it. I don't know how many of you have heard of it it puts mental health squarely in the same category as physical health and safety, rather than as a purely HR and people management issue. It states, psychosocial risks affect both psychological health and safety and health and safety and well-being at work more broadly. Psychosocial risks are also associated with economic costs to organizations and society. How many of us look at mental ill health as a risk? Because it is. For the organization, the impact of psychosocial risks includes increased costs due to absence from work, turnover, reduced product or service quality, recruitment and training, workplace investigations and litigation, as well as damage to the organization's reputation. Effective management of psychosocial risk can lead to benefits such as improved worker engagement, enhanced productivity, increased innovation, and organisational sustainability. That's a quote directly from ISO 45003. That's a hell of a quote. Yeah, it's brilliant. It this document outlines examples of psychosocial hazards arising from work organisation. So the way the work is structured, social factors and work environment, equipment and hazardous tasks, as well as a range of control measures that can be used to eliminate hazards or minimize associated risk. This is something you definitely should be reading through. Things like mental health first aiders. I am one.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: Yeah. Things like mental health first aiders and talks. They're all elements of a good wellbeing strategy but they're not the whole strategy in and of themselves you need a framework to help you explore the issue of mental well-being holistically and comprehensively you need to take a bird's eye view starting from an understanding of what it is you're trying to achieve what's your objective how does this align with your overall corporate objectives and principles that support them are they in line with each other do they fit at aurora we've developed our own framework for how you can embed well-being successfully into your company's culture we call it the aurora 360 because it looks at all the elements that are involved in culture and behavior change and we've made it as simple as possible because we are simple <laughs> So it's easy to remember. Remember, I've got ADHD and I can't remember stuff. We've made it as simple as possible because we are simple. And we've made it really easy to remember because I can't remember stuff. I've got ADHD. So that's really it. Made it really clear. I love a good framework and it gives you a starting point. There's four pillars in this framework, just four. It is dead simple. And I'll explain what those four pillars are. The first one is discovery. How many of us are guilty of just kind of assuming we understand what our employees need, want from us? Well, for us, That's not good enough. That's not a good enough basis for building a strategy. You need to know. So through discovery, which is through things like focus groups, listening groups, surveys and analysis, and I don't mean just the one annual survey you did with the bog-standard questions that got the answers that you were hoping to achieve, but proper surveys. It's gonna help you to build the business case for action. It's gonna help you identify the solutions that your employees really want to see and that are gonna work for them. So that way you can deliver effective and lasting change in your organization. And everybody thinks they do this, right? Don't they, Obi? Yeah. But we've seen a lot of surveys and you come back, uh, uh, it's like I say, there's, there's facts, there's facts, and there's damn lies just because you do an employee survey once a year doesn't mean you know what your employees are thinking.
1: No, you know you just know what they're thinking at the end of that year, but you don't know what they're thinking every quarter, um, every month. There's no way for you to be able to collect that data. And it doesn't mean you have to get everybody to do the same one survey several times, but you might get different voices at different stages. So you might have different departments to have that. Or you might get um, senior leadership have that. So there's a split way of trying to figure out how what your people think without feeling like you have to, you know, survey them to debt, um, you know, every quarter. But I'd we'd always recommend at least three times a year. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah, and also to carefully interpret the results. If yeah. everybody's kind of going yeah, 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 as close uh, as close to middling as possible, you're gonna have to challenge that. Um, yeah. If you're not getting qualitative data in, you have to question some of the quantitative data that you're receiving.
1: Yeah, I do. And I also think a lot of people, it's very easy to use surveys because it's easy to design and easy to to sort of just sort of disseminate or whatever that way. And it's cheap. And it's cheap. It doesn't always get you to see the nuance of stuff, which is why I would recommend you know, focus group, listening group, anything. And it doesn't have to be the same group because you're not going to go, oh, I did that already last month. No, just find another group of people to do it with. We wanted to see, are we hearing the same things over and over every time we've done it, or are we now hearing certain changes? The second group who we surveyed three months later, um, are, do they also probably agree with the first group, but they can see changes happening? That means whatever intervention we've put in place is working. So uh, the idea is don't just survey, do focus group or some other where you get to talk to actual human beings in your organization.
0: Talking. Talking. Mm. Okay, so that's the first pillar, discovery. Actually figure out what the problems are, not just the ones that land at your door, but the ones that are felt throughout the organization. Once you've done that, and you are satisfied that the information you have is accurate and reflective, then you can move on to two. The second pillar in the 360 framework is awareness. And this is where we see most people focusing their efforts because it's the big, splashy, fun stuff, right? It's the talks and the workshops. It's the webinars. It's the mental health first aid aid stuff. It's the um, having competitions. It's Mm -hmm. the time to talk day. It's the stuff that you can post about on your social medias that say, look how good we are as a company. That stuff has a place. It really does. The purpose of it is to help increase the awareness of the signs and the impacts of poor mental health right and give um everybody this uh understanding that as an organization this isn't a topic that you're afraid to address however you should also include training for all of your staff everybody needs to know that it's okay for them to be open about talking about their mental well-being and how they do it so this is where most people will come to us for support about talks and and webinars and workshops and things that that help to highlight that mental health is something that the organisation takes seriously.
1: Yeah, which is a good thing to do because I think and the more a company does awareness days like that, it starts to get to the your teams and your employees that actually this company does care about you. And so it's a great way to be able to let everybody know that as a senior leadership, you care about the mental health of your people. But again, what we're going to see now, that can't be the only thing that you do, but it's a brilliant way of doing it in a regular, yearly, because every time you get new members of staff, they also get involved in the next one kind of thing. So I actually love this stage. It's a fun one. But again, it's where everybody put all their eggs in the basket it's usually in this one. Mm -hmm. And so we've got two more to
0: share. Okay. So you've done discovery, you've done awareness. The next thing that you have to make sure you cover off is empowerment. You as the HR lead, the HR BP, the PNC lead, you cannot be the only person Solves the mental health problems in your organization. It's not possible for you to do that. It isn't. It really isn't. And you know that it shouldn't be. It shouldn't all fall down to you. If it gets to you, it's too late. The only way to make sure that your organization is proactive in its mental health support is to engage the line managers, right? Line managers are in a perfect position. They're the one person in an organization who will see all your employees on a regular basis, whether that be virtually or in the office, and have the authority and responsibility to do something about any problems that employee is encountering. Yeah. So they may, you you know, I might see that Sandra is not doing well, when I meet her in the, in the, in the canteen, but I can't do naff all about it. I can't change her working hours. I can't take any of her work responsibilities away from her while she's going through this divorce, but if her line manager can, and that's why so much focus and attention is put on upskilling line managers so that they are aware able to spot the signs of mental ill health, know that it's their job to do something about it, feel equipped to normalize the conversation and signpost to support, all whilst knowing that they're not supposed to therapize or treat themselves. Exactly. This
1: stage, it's about changing behaviors to powerful proven coaching techniques. It's not really necessarily therapy. It's designed to have the most impact on company culture by empowering line managers, those in the position influence to identify, normalize and manage mental health issues
0: in their teams. Finally, so you've done your due diligence, you've figured out what your people need and what they want. You've advertised uh, far and wide, internal and external, all the great stuff that you have planned in your well-being strategy for mental health support. You have upskilled your line managers so that they can take some of the responsibility of supporting your frontline staff with their um, mental health and well-being. What's left? Step four, the fourth pillar. That is always the least favorite, but one of the most critical governance. All this good work that you have done needs to be securely embedded into some form of governance to ensure that every employee in the organization, no matter when they join, and no matter who is the new HRD at any time. Will receive the same level of support. That means you need to have clear policies and uh, you need to have stewardship of the effectiveness of the well-being strategy. What metrics are you tracking? You need to have it properly resourced and funded, and you need to have that written down somewhere so that everybody knows what they have the right to access. How many of you guys have a well-being policy that's publicly stated in your, at least internally, so that employees know what their rights are and their responsibilities? It's important that you do this so that you can properly establish, promote, and maintain all the good work that you are doing to support your employees' mental health and well-being in your organization. I have to say it's a good framework. And I think when we've run
1: roundtables and we've worked with organizations, it's been well received because it's simple. And we're sharing with you here um, on the podcast because I wanted to have a starting point, somewhere to go, right, what's missing here? Now there's some details and we'll put that literally in the show notes for you to be able to download this kit. Um and it goes into more details about what's in it and how many times, for example, you to do a survey, what awareness how you what awareness days you might be able to do and all that kind of stuff so in there in a kit and that should help you at least start doing things um and then hopefully we'll hear back from you see how you're getting on with it so
0: to round off long-term well-being strategies are more effective and therefore more cost effective because it reduces the overwhelming cost of poor mental health on your business in terms of productivity, absenteeism, presenteeism, all of that stuff. But it requires a comprehensive strategy and mental health and safety should be viewed in the same way as physical health and safety. It's not about just quick wins or box ticking. It's about making the business robust, sustainable, and resilient. Use a framework like the Aurora 360 to approach strategic thinking, and make sure that it c- incorporates all aspects of culture and behaviour change. Do as Obi suggested: download the uh, Aurora 360 and use that as a guide and framework for you to start looking at how you can be more strategic in your approach to mental health support and. For the love of all things good, go and look up ISO 45003 and ask your organization's safety lead whether they've looked into it. Remember that mental health and well-being isn't just HR's responsibility. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share
1: it with your colleagues. Follow us on LinkedIn. The link will be in the show notes and generally show
0: us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.